Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's the author of Bruise and former corporate spy. It's Robert Kerbeck. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm doing pretty well. I haven't I haven't spied on anyone yet, but we're going to do it right now. <laughs> we're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. Uh, my hometown is Philadelphia, and um, I was really into sports as a kid. I'm still into sports. Uh, fly, Eagles, fly. My Eagles are in the NFC Conference Championship game. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, we've had a wonderful year. So, yeah, I just kind of grew up really into sports, played a lot of sports. Um, you know, in my dream of dreams, I would have been a professional athlete or a rock star. Unfortunately, I didn't have a lot of talent at either of those things. <laughs> Was there any sports in particular that you learned a lot about yourself growing up? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I would, I guess I'd say it was football. I mean, I played football in high school. We had a pretty good team. We won our um, uh, league championship two out of my three varsity seasons. Um, and then I, I was injured my senior year pretty severely. Um, so, you know, things like that can can really you know change your direction in life you know you you play football and you know it's a rough sport but then when you get really hurt you realize yeah it is a really it is a really rough sport and you realize you know maybe maybe uh, my body's not intended for this type of uh of physical damage <laughs> after that injury did you kind of lose that passion to continue playing or you're like this is maybe an opportunity to find something else that i enjoy doing well, I think that's what I did is I said, okay, look, you know, I mean, not that I was going to necessarily play football in college, but I think in the back of my mind, I thought about that. Um, and then you have an injury like that and you're like, you know what, maybe this is just not for me. Um, and even when I was at college, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, which is a great school, um, Ivy League, which is, you know, great. Um, and the football there is, you know, it's not, you know, it's kind of a, a, a lower tier of football, even mm -hmm. though it's still great football and very competitive. So there was part of me that was like, well, you know what? I could go out for that team. Um, and I think I met the coach and the coach was very nice and whatnot. But along the way, I fell in love with acting and started doing theater at Penn. And once that happened, um, I, I was not interested in, in even trying sports anymore um, because I fell in love with acting. And, and I just just really theater became a, a lifelong love of mine. With acting, was that kind of your goal to kind of become an actor or did you have another dream job that you were wanting to go for? No, I only got into acting because I was paying for college myself um, and uh, I wasn't meeting a lot of people because I was working all the time and then going to school. And then at a certain point, I got a, an opportunity to be a, an RA, a resident advisor in one of the dormitories, which meant you get your room paid for and you get your meal plan paid for, even get a little stipend. And that enabled me to quit my my job. And, um, and you know, at that point, I hadn't, you know, had a girlfriend. I hadn't been dating because I had no time. And so... I said, where, where am I going to meet, you know, women, you know, and, uh, and somebody said the theater <laughs> <laughs> and they were correct. Um, so I started doing theater, fell in love with a girl in the theater and fell in love with theater and the girl didn't stick, but the theater did. Do you have a memorable performance that you were in or that you remember and you're like, wow, I did that? Yeah, you know, I mean, there were a lot because I, you know, I did become a professional actor and that's the whole, we'll get into how I transitioned into spying, but, you know, I, I was a working actor and did, you know, um, you know, high level, uh, off-Broadway shows that were reviewed in the New York Times, the New Yorker, um, and, and then of course moved to Los Angeles and did, 
you know, major television and film. But, um, but as a young guy, I, I remember I did a play and, um, I played the bad guy in my last play at Penn. It was the lead bad guy. And I remember the father of the girl that I was dating and that I had fallen in love with came up to me and he said, you know, I was watching the play and I knew my daughter was dating someone in the play. And, but I didn't know who. And when you came on stage, I was saying, please, God, let it not be this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and to his, uh, to his embarrassment, uh, I was dating his daughter. And, that, and I, you know, so. What would you tell someone is the challenging, challenging part about being an actor and kind of finding gigs, finding auditions and things like that? Because a lot of people think, oh, it's so easy. Oh, I have the looks. I can do it. But talk about the challenges you faced. Well, I've never heard anybody say that. So if if people are saying that they think it's easy, um, then I say go for it because <laughs> y- you're going to be you're going to be unpleasantly surprised. Look, the hardest part of acting, um, besides acting, is dealing with um, the inevitable and nearly constant unemployment. Mm-hmm. Um, and except for a rare few, and even the rare few, the Al Pacinos of the world. I mean, Al Pacino had a time where. People thought his career was over, believe it or not. There was a time where Al Pacino had a comeback movie, as if Al Pacino needed to have a comeback movie, right? But even Al Pacino went through on a periods of unemployment where people weren't hiring him, et cetera, et cetera. So if, Al Pacino, if it could happen to Al Pacino, it could happen to anybody. Um, and I think that's the hardest thing, and it was hard for me, is you would get a gig you know, I remember when I first came to Los Angeles, I was getting gigs all the time. Uh, you know, I was starring in Melrose Place and uh, ER and Star Trek and um, Chicago Hope, NYPD Blue, all these amazing shows. And I was working all the time. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And I couldn't, I'm like, wait a second. I've been doing all these shows, getting all these jobs. Why now am I not getting them anymore? Why am I now getting fewer auditions? You know, and it was a real, um, you know, it was a real eye opener and it was definitely a disappointment. Um, because here I had gone to a certain point and I, I was like, and my career had just kind of kept going up, up, up. And then all of a sudden it went the opposite direction. And that's when the corporate spying became much more of a thing when I started to realize that my shelf life as an actor, because now I wasn't a kid anymore, I wasn't the new kid in town anymore, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, you know, if I ever want to be able to like pay my bills and you know, God forbid, you know, buy a house, mm-hmm. uh, I'm gonna need to do something that I can make money doing. And the only thing I had was this crazy corporate spying job that I had accidentally stumbled into to pay my bills as an actor. Talk about that transition into that, how you accidentally stumbled into it. Well, when I first moved to New York after graduating college, you know, to try being an actor, I only knew one person, my college roommate's brother. He kind of was showing me the ropes and, um, and I was looking for jobs. I didn't really have the patience to be a waiter. I wasn't a late night guy. So bartending was out. And, um, he one day mentioned this job very kind of mysteriously. And then he shut up right away as if he knew he wasn't supposed to talk about it. And I said, Hey, you know, dude, I'm broke. You got to help me out. What is this job? And so he, sort of reluctantly got me an interview. I went to the Upper East Side um, to interview with this woman that had this firm. Um, and for your audience, the Upper East Side is kind of the ritziest area of Manhattan. It's the old money area of Manhattan. And sure enough, I show up at this woman's place. It's a doorman building. I go up to the penthouse. I was living in Hell's Kitchen in a cave with two other guys. 
And this woman ushers me into the nicest apartment that I'd ever been in. And right away I knew any, an apartment isn't even right. The right word. It's, you know, it's like a penthouse. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and right away I knew whatever she was doing, it was lucrative. Um, there was a lot of money involved and, um, we have a very strange interview. She never asks me anything about my skills. She never tells me anything about the job. Um, I leave, my buddy calls me and he says, okay, you got the job, but don't get excited because she hires everyone because no one is able to do this job. And the next day I went out to Brooklyn and I began my training as a corporate spy. Did you ever have hesitation on not knowing the specifics about the job and like, what am I really getting myself into? Not then, you know, because I was desperate and, you know, when you're a young person and you need a job, you know, you're like, well, sure, I'll check this out. Sure, I'll try this. When I found out, you know, that day in Brooklyn, there was this woman who was training me and, and she started to explain that what we do is we use our acting skills to call major corporations. You know, I mean, we all know the Russians spy on the Chinese, the Chinese spy on us, but most people are shocked to find out that corporations and not some corporations, but nearly all corporations. And of course, I would say all corporations, but nearly all corporations are spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year to hire spies. And that's what we were hired to do. And we were hired to use our acting skills to infiltrate companies using accents, using voices, using personas to get people on the inside to tell us secrets about the companies that they should never in a million years tell us. Was this kind of like, how do I get myself into the mode to be able to do this? Because you talked about they hire actors to do this mm -hmm. because they're able to kind of get into different personas, different kind of characters. Was this like the ultimate test for you where you've gotten those experiences in California with the different play TV shows roles, but this is a true test. Like I'm putting my skills to the test. Yeah. I mean, look, we were, you know, create we had to create stories that get highly educated people to believe that you are who you say you are and you're not mm -hmm. and to release sensitive corporate information about corporate plans you know um um you know corporate organizational structures who their top people were how much they paid their people what new products they had coming how much they were going to charge for these products were they hiring were they expanding you know you know you know was there some crisis internally going on with you know senior manager whatever anything and everything and you know and it was always um you know an incredibly challenging job um you know you know the the woman that hired me and my buddy had had two women working for her previously. And then she was not able to find anybody that was able to do this job for many years. Um, and later when I had my own corporate spying firm, I, it was incredibly difficult that, to find people that had the unique skill set of kind of the improvisational skills that an actor has. Um, and also the, um, the um, ability to understand business, you know, cause you had to have some, you know, understanding of the business world and, and what made sense in the business world. And I came from an entrepreneurial family. So I, I just kind of lucked that I had that. Um, and so I was just, you know, in a very strange way, you know, born for this job, born to ruse is a chapter in the book. Um, uh, you know, channeling a little Bruce Springsteen action there, born to ruse. Um, but yeah, I was, I was a perfect uh, candidate to become a corporate spy. What was the biggest danger in this job for you? Well, look, you know, we're calling corporations. We're pretending to be oftentimes real people 
um, who exist, major executives. You know, we would hear people on, you know, even back in the day, we could, you could hear people on the radio, you could hear them on an interview show, or you could even call their phone number and hear their voice on their voicemail. Hey, this is Rick Jones, uh, COO for blah, blah, blah firm. Uh, you know, I'm busy right now, but leave a, you know, and I'd go, oh, I could imitate that voice. Yeah, that, I know how to do that. You know, and so we would practice imitating these executives. So you think about it, now we're impersonating real people um, to get corporate secrets. So, you know, it doesn't take a, you know, it doesn't take a, a, a you know, a, 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 you know, a, a, you know, whatever. It doesn't take a, you know, you could see where that could lead you into a lot of trouble where now the authorities hear that if they were to catch you on a, you know, recording or, you know, if they were to start an investigation, um, and in the book, you know, I have quite a few close calls where you've got, got the FBI and you've got the SEC and you've got all these other organizations searching for me and, and my buddy in the book. He, I call them PACs um, because, you know, we at a certain point, the authorities stumbled onto our trail. And then it was a very scary moment where this job that we thought was this kind of in the gray job just to support ourselves at actors all of a sudden seemed like it was going to land us in prison for a long time. Was it hard to kind of keep the different personas separate where you are being Robert in the real world, but you're being this character when you're going and doing your job? Were you able to tell people what you were doing? Obviously, you probably wouldn't. No, tell. no, so no. How, was it hard to kind of keep the two lives different? Well, I mean, you know, occasionally if I was at a party and I had one too many drinks and somebody said, what do you do? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm in corporate intelligence. And they'd say, well, what does that mean? And I say, if I told you, I'd have to take you out back and kill you, you know, um, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't talk about it. And I never did talk about it. You know, uh, you know, I would just tell people, well, you know, I'm in corporate intelligence or I'm in executive recruiting or something like that. Um, that was vague enough that people would go, oh, that sounds boring. And, and, and we would move on. Um, but yeah, you know, um, the thing for me was, you know, and in the book, I, I talk a lot about the ethics of the job and my struggle with the ethics of the job. And of course, the question of the legality of the job um, and the close calls with the law. Um, but I always was careful to keep my rusing life to the job. And, mm -hmm. you know, as much as, you know, one of the things I think, you know, I mean, the, the book, of course, you know, I say, I'd like to say I've written a true book about lying, right? Because here I am, all these corporate spying, everything is a lie, everything is made up. And of course, it's all true, right? Um, but I think that I made sure to keep it separate from my personal life, because I knew that if I started lying to my friends, or I started lying to the, you know, it was just, you know, I, I didn't want to go down that road. And by the way, when I started the corporate spying job, remember, it was just to support me as an actor, mm. you know, and, it, and in the beginning, believe it or not, they paid me $8 an hour to do this crazy, you know, quasi illegal job. Um, however, by the end of it, I was making uh, over $2 million a year. Um, and I went from this wannabe actor to, you know, uh, I think the New York Post said the world's greatest spy, um, because I was working for the largest firms in the world, spying for them on a regular basis. And I had so much spying work that I was turning down more clients than I was accepting. Wow. Yeah. And when I wrote the book, what shocked me, there are two things that shocked me about writing the book, that shocked me the most. The first was, so I write this book about corporate spying, corporate espionage. I'm outing myself as a spy. You know, I'm saying, hey, look what I did. Look what I did. I cannot tell you how many emails I got from major corporations saying, oh, hey, 
we read your book. Your book is great. We want to hire you to spy for us. <laughs> and, I, and I went, whoa, 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 whoa. You, okay, you read my book or you listened to it on Audible, whatever. Don't you understand? I've outed myself as a spy. I've basically told the world that I'm a corporate spy. Like, I can't spy for you anymore because it's yeah. like I put a target on my back, you know? Um, so that was the, the thing that shocked me the most. And then the second one, and this doesn't really tie into what you asked, but the second thing I, it still blows me away is that, you know, when you write a book, your publisher solicits or reaches out to people that have written books similar to yours and say, hey, will you, will you read this book and consider giving a testimonial and endorsement, a blurb? And, you know, nine times out of 10, the people say, no, you know, these are famous people. They're busy, whatever. Well, they reached out to my publisher, reached out to Frank Abagnale, who wrote Catch Me If You Can, right, which, of course, was turned into an amazing movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg directed it. And they reach out to Frank Abagnale and he says, yeah, I'll take a look at it. And to our shock, he flips over the book. He loves the book so much. Not only does he give the amazing, an amazing blurb, which is on the cover of Ruse, but then he starts recommending me to people to speak on cybercrime, on, you know, corporate espionage. So he recommends me to conference. He recommends me to his speaking agency that represents me now. So that was the other thing that, that blew me away that like this guy that I had never even met, I never even knew of, who's sort of a famous man or is a famous man, um, really was, he was taken by the story too. Why did you feel that you needed to out yourself by writing a book? Was it getting to a point that you just couldn't do it much longer or you're just ready to come clean? Well, that's all in the book. Um, and, you know, uh, without spoiling it too much for, for, you know, potential readers or listeners again, cause the book is on audible. Um, you know, I, I was always conflicted, you know, about the, you know, the job and, um, I had a child and, you know, and one day my, my eight year old heard me on the phone and said, you know, dad, you know, are you a hacker? And I was, and I was like, no, no, I'm not a hacker. You know, I just get information about corporations and I sell it to other corporations. You know, it's not really that bad or whatever. And, and, and my kid said, uh, but it's dishonest. And I said, yeah, you're right. It is. And that was kind of the, the light bulb moment where I went, I got to get out of this. You know, I got to get out of this. Um, and then, you know, and then again, that's part of the book. And so I, I really began to work on my exit strategy. And of course, I also knew that I needed to have, a, I needed a little bit of time um, in terms of a potential stat or the statute of limitations on any crimes that I may or may not have committed. I needed to let that expire before the book was published. You talked about your kids saying it was dishonest. Were you now realizing, like, I got to teach them a better lesson and telling the truth and things like that? Because if they followed in your footstep by living that life where they're spying or not being honest, do you think that would be a, a bad reflection on what you were doing, but now it's going towards your kids now? Well, of course, right? Yeah, I mean, no doubt. Uh, I mean, I think, again... I justified what I did, and this is a justification. This is not saying it's it's right, but I justified it saying, look, you know, I'm not stealing the credit card numbers of old ladies. I'm not stealing money from your personal bank account. You know, I'm getting information from one corporation, selling it to another corporation. And we, for better or for worse, we live in a capitalist system and that's just how it works. You know, like I said, all of these corporations are hiring spies, all of them. Um, and I know because they were all my clients and they're the biggest companies in the world. And I personally presented my extracted data 
to individuals that today are one step away from being the CEOs of some of the largest publicly traded companies in the world. These are people that are on CNBC. They are talking about corporate ethics and blah, blah, blah. And I'm here to tell you they're hiring and paying for spies all the time because it's such a cut, you know, you know, we think about sports being cutthroat, the football, you know, NFL cutthroat, you know, basketball, NBA championship cutthroat to make it. Corporate America is far more cutthroat, um, you know, and these executives are being paid a lot of money, uh, huge bonuses, and they will do anything and everything they can to win. And winning means getting information that drives their revenue and increases their stock price so their value for shareholders. And, and part of that is finding out what your competitors are up to. You talked about a company reading your book or someone in a corporation reading your book. Mm-hmm. Have you had reactions from people who have not been in corporations reading your book and their thoughts about everything that is in your book? Like what has been that reaction from them? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, because I I was a working actor and because I had all of these crazy experiences with working with OJ Simpson on this exercise video the week before he became the world's most famous murderer. Uh, I was hit on by Kevin Spacey. I hung up on Yoko Ono. I drank beers with Paul N- Newman. I uh, peed next to Al Pacino, right? There are all these crazy, zany stories. So the book is kind of two books. There's the corporate spying book, but there's also this Hollywood tell-all book. And so even people that maybe didn't work in corporate America or that, you know, I mean, first of all, they're fascinated because my publisher, part of the reason they said that they bought Ruse was that no one's written a book about corporate spying before. Apparently, mm-hmm. my book is the first to kind of, you know, take us into that world. Um, but Ruse is kind of two books. So you, 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 you kind of, you know, go back and forth between these worlds. Um, and I think that's, that makes it a lot of fun because you get to, you know, you get to learn, you know, what a horrible person Madonna is. And you get to, there's all this crazy stuff that you get to see that, cause here I am trying to be an actor and getting very close to making it, you know, big time while at the same time doing this, this, you know, in this dark underbelly of corporate espionage. Is your main goal now as a career, is your book speaking, is that where your passion about yeah. is doing all of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So my first book was Malibu Burning, which was about the terrible fire a few years back that, you know, uh, burned down a, you know, a large section of Malibu. I live in Malibu. My family, we fought the fire. We saved our house. Um, 17 of 19 on our street burned to the ground. Um, and the LA Times asked me to write an essay about the fire, which I did. And then a publisher read that and asked me to write this book, Malibu Burning. And that book, you know, uh, you know, uh, won a couple of National Book Awards. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful. Um, and it was a really, uh, you know, everyone thinks everyone in Malibu is rich, rich or famous or both. And, and it's not true. There's a real kind of old school, old Malibu kind of frontier element to Malibu that a lot of people have no idea still exists. Um, and the book really captured that. And it also captured the spirit of people coming together, uh, in a terrible moment to help each other. You know, there were people that were, that stayed behind and saved, you know, 300 homes by themselves or with one or two other people, you know, some of them were celebrities, Kevin Dillon, the actor from, uh, uh, who played Johnny drama in the NB, uh, the uh, HBO series entourage, you know, he stayed with, I think two other, three other guys and they saved an entire neighborhood themselves. Um, so that book was really, you know, rewarding to write. And then, of course, now I've written Ruse, you know, and that's been a, a real kind of dream come true to finally get to tell all these crazy stories. So, uh, yeah, so I'm really enjoying writing and that that's where my interests lie today. 
is there any plans for future books and you writing anything more or focusing on yeah, yeah. first? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I've got two other projects I'm working on right now. One's nonfiction, the other's fiction. And, um, and Ruse is in development for a TV series, which is really exciting. Um, thanks in large part to Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can saying such nice things. Um, Hollywood really pricked up their ears because they're like, wait a second, if the guy that wrote that movie likes Ruse, maybe we ought to check it out. And they did. And so, um, and, um, and, and so far they really want me to be involved because, you know, when you write a book and, you know, Ruse is, it's not a long book. It's, I think, 275 pages. Um, and it's a page turner. It reads really quickly, but the, the producer said, look, you know, you've got a lot more stories probably that aren't in the book. And I'm like, hell, I, yeah, of course I do. You know, I, you know, I did that job for a while. And they said, well, we're going to need those stories if, if we do a series that goes for any, you know, if series goes for two years, three years, four years, whatever, five years, you know, you, they need content. And so they really want me to be involved, which is exciting, you know, that, you know, um, you know, and it, it's gone pretty far down the road. It's, it's, you know, it's getting close to, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the final stages, basically you start casting and you shoot. As you mentioned, Dave, working in to get into a TV series, I can already just imagine it. I mean, you mm. see all these Law & Order, CSIs, mm. all these cop shows where it's like real stories. Yeah, they change the names and stuff because it's still right. fiction. But I can just imagine what your book's about and your experiences into one of those shows that's on CBS or Fox and things like that. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, the, the people have been responding because, it, again nobody really knew i mean it makes sense people are like yeah it makes sense oh i get it now but most people didn't know that you know there are people out there that are doing this for a living and making a lot of money doing it and here we are all these corporations that again are talking about morals and ethics and they're start they have charitable foundations and they're hiring spies every day you know now of course they do it through an intermediary um, they never hire spies directly. They hire them through a consulting firm or through their executive recruiting firm or through some other firm that then directly hires the spy so that there's some plausible deniability that if they get caught, they can go, oh, my God, you know, we don't know this guy, Robert. We never even heard of him. And I'm here to tell you that I've been to many a boardroom presenting my stolen data to senior executives. Looking at your whole journey and the ups and downs that you pro- maybe been on, what is the biggest thing it taught you about yourself? Uh, you know, I think uh, perseverance um, and then also the ability to pivot. You know, I think you got to have, especially in our world today, you know, you're probably not going to have one job for your whole life. I mean, highly unlikely. Um, so you've got to be able to you know, pivot and you're going to have jobs that go great and you're going to have jobs that don't go so great. You're going to have good bosses. And you're going to have terrible bosses. And, you know, and you're constantly going to be having to navigate your path. And I think the ability to pivot um, to a new job and to pivot to a new career and to and to rise to the challenge, you know, instead of going, oh, my God, this job's terrible. Oh, my God, my boss is terrible. OK, you know what? My job's terrible. My boss is terrible. I'm going to change that. And I'm going to start working on ways to change it. I'm going to start looking for another job. I'm going to start figuring out how to turn my relationship with my boss around. I'm going to figure out how to get transferred to a different department because there's a boss over there that I do want to work for. You know, there are all kinds of things you can do if you rise to the challenge, right? What's a personal goal that you have for yourself in the next few years? 
I think just to keep writing, you know, and also to support other writers. I've started this um, literary salon here in Malibu um, at Soho House Malibu. And Soho House is a club um, for artists. Uh, and they have Soho houses all over the world. And so I've been starting this literary salon. And on Monday, so less than a week, I'm going to be hosting Stephen A. Smith, um, Stephen A. Yeah, Stephen A. The legendary ESPN sports media figure. You know, those damn Dallas Cowboys lost again. You know, which I love because he hates the Cowboys and I hate the Cowboys. Um, but he's got a memoir out called Straight Shooter, and so I've been doing these um, salon events, and they've been getting a lot of attention. And sure enough, now some pretty well, I mean, you know, Stephen A is an extremely well-known individual and he, you know, is promoting his book. And so he's going to come Monday night. I'm going to interview him and I'm going to help him sell some books and people are going to come out. We're going to have a crazy packed house. And so that's a nice thing because some of the people that I've done the salon for are not household names like Stephen A. Smith. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm helping them promote their book and get their really good book out into the world. Cause I, I, I'm, I only do it once a month. So I'm picking books that I love. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I feel good about that. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of supporting writers and literary community and giving back. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? You know, I always tell people, take the journey you want to take. Don't take the journey your, your mom or dad wants you to take. Don't take the journey that your partner wants you to take or your boss wants you to take or your friend wants you to take or your kids want you to take. You know, take the journey you want to take, you know. Um, so do the job that you want to do. Find the career that you want to have. Even if it's a hobby, you know, if you've got this other, okay, well, I got to pay the bills, right? Because we all have that. That's why I fell into corporate spying. I had to pay the bills. But you can still have something else as a hobby. So, you know, a lot of, in, you know, in, in terms of me, you know, there are a lot of people out there that approach me about how do I write a memoir or how do I, you know, and I say, you sit down and you write it, you know, and you should write it because, you know, so many people have great stories out there. And, you know, nowadays you can self-publish your memoir. There's no shame in that. Uh, the only thing I would tell you is make sure it's professionally copy edited um, and make sure you have some people reading your memoir that are not your mother or your partner um, and they're giving you honest feedback so you can make your story um, the best story it can possibly be. Um, and so that's what I would tell people is you can do all the things that you want to do in life, um, even if it's not necessarily going to be your your income, you can still do it. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. Okay, thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. Tune in next time here. My next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel to get the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.